Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined with the star of our show, Cotts Corner, Hall of Fame pitcher, Jim Cott, fresh off of a spring training visit down there with the Minnesota Twins. Jim, good to have you back. I missed you, buddy. You were gone for a week there. Well, good to be back. It was an uh, interesting week, and I enjoyed uh, you know, seeing a lot of my former teammates and uh, some colleagues down there. So uh, we'll talk about some of the differences and what I experienced down there, but it was, uh, it was enjoyable going down there. Yeah, I, I was excited for you. got a chance to see some of your old teammates. In fact, it's not an old teammate of yours, but um, a staple down there at spring training in baseball. Tim Kirchin was on our show yesterday, coaching Kernan, and he wanted to make sure I said hello to you. Yeah, Tim, it was wonderful being at his uh, induction. And uh, I know spring training for the reporters is really uh, a great time because they have such access to the players and the managers with uh, no tension like there is during the uh, season. So they really look, the, uh, the writers really look forward to it. Yeah, everybody's relaxed down there. The sunshine, everybody's undefeated still. Nobody's nobody's uh, ornery toward the reporters. And he even said Buck Showalter, as soon as he got down there, threw him in his golf cart to, to show him all the new changes he made to the, I guess, Port, Port St. Lucie site for the Mets, uh, for batter's eyes, every little detail he took him through. So Tim, right. was, Tim was lively. So with with your experience down there, you got a chance to see some of your old teammates, Rod Carew, Tony Oliva. Share with the audience a little bit what you who you saw down there and um, what you guys kind of reminisced about. Yeah, I, I think really the most enjoyable time, uh, Dave St. Peter, the president of the Twins, and, and uh, he has put me on staff as a, quote, special assistant to the president. Sounds like an important title, but oh, yeah. it's kind of like an ambassador. And in this, uh, in this community in Naples, Florida, there is over 200 Minnesota residents, full-time and part-time, that at their age, are such fans of our teams in the 60s. So uh, with uh, Chris, Chris Attleberry, the uh, MC from WCCO Radio, uh, we did a, a breakfast and a, a kind of a roundtable discussion with Rod Carew and Tony and I and, and reminisced about some of the uh, experiences we had in the 60s because I was with the Twins the entire decade of the 60s. Tony came up. He was Rookie of the Year 64. And then Rod came up in 67. So uh, actually a unique part of our Twins franchise was in the early 70s. I think we're one of two teams that had five Hall of Famers on the team at one time. And Harmon Killebrew and Burt Blylevin were there with Rod. And then Tony and I got to join them last year. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, you, you know, you can't say that nowadays. That's a, especially with doing that before, this free agency kick is they can load teams now much easier than they, they could back then. So that's, that's quite an accomplishment for the organization in terms of developing that type of talent and knowing how to trade for it in yourself. Yeah. And, and actually you make a good point because all five of us were developed by the senators slash twins. So uh, there wasn't any of those guys that came in a trade. We do have one hall of famer in camp that did come in a trade and he's a a famous name in uh, in Minnesota because he went to school there, and that's Paul Molitor. Oh yeah, yeah. And he was down there. Yeah, he's he comes down as uh, you know, kind of what we all do. I, I mean, they they do it more than I do. Some of them are there two three weeks, but uh, I was only there a couple days. But uh, you know, I I have sort of self pronounced myself as irrelevant to today's game as far as dialogue going on with how it's played. Uh, how it's operated, uh, things that I could pass down to players. Uh, you know, it's just entirely different with the speed and the power and the athleticism of today's game. Uh, they can't relate to the way we played it, and I can't relate to the game, the, the way they're playing it. It, it is changing. It, if there were a couple of things, if, if – uh... If you were given the opportunity or jumped in, what are some things you feel like you could help the modern player? Well, you know, interesting. I was—I uh, have a habit of holding a baseball. I can hold it 
with my index and middle finger wrapped around it with my thumb off. And that's the way I always, and which is built up some strength in my fingers. And, uh, and that's the way I got a lot of spin on the ball. So I was holding the ball like that, which I usually do out of habit. And Kenta Maeda's interpreter saw me and he said, what are you doing there? I said, that's the way I grip my fastball. And I told him about putting a relaxed thumb on the ball and using the curl of the fingers to create spin because we were more interested in spin and movement than velocity. And of course, Kenta, who the twins hope comes back today, uh, back rather this year to form he had a couple years ago, is not a, a, a typical power pitcher like today. He's a low 90s guy, has a splitter, a curve. So he's a pitcher, not just a power thrower. So he was very interested in that. And I, I found that fascinating. I said, you know, I haven't had a chance to share anything with any of the current pitchers, but here's Kenta's interpreter that's very curious about how I did things. And I found that refreshing. Well, it's impressive on two levels. One, it shows that you you can relate to the modern player. And two, you can do it across the language barrier. So that's uh, I'm glad that they picked that up. But I would also think, I mean, that grip, I'm trying to do it now as you were talking with it with the ball and I muted myself so you didn't hear the ball dropping on the floor. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little difficult to be to start with. You know, you have to get a little tackiness on your fingers. You might want a little pine tar on your belt or something. But, uh, but uh, you know, you grip that with the, with the fingers and that's where you create spin, which is what uh, pitching was in the past was spin and movement and control. Uh, you know, interesting, I said to Rocco Baldelli, uh, he was asking me about what my fastball did. And I said it was, it was kind of tailing down and away from right-hand hitters. And, and for me, a perfect game would be 27 pitches and 27 ground ball outs. Um, I didn't care about strikeouts. I didn't want to walk anybody. And I wanted to dispatch the hitter in three pitches or less. And so I was explaining, you know, what it did. And uh, I didn't know Jace Tingler, the bench coach, was there talking velocity. I said, I have no idea how hard it was. And I said, I still think that if you had command of the fastball, which is the only pitch you can throw to all four quadrants of the strike zone, and a good changeup, like I wish I had Johan Santana's or Frank Viola's or Tom Glavin's, one of those type guys, you could pitch. And, and Rocco said, you know, they're so geared for velocity that anything less than maximum, uh, they just crush. Well, uh, I respect Rocco, but I don't know if I can buy into that philosophy. I still think if you could uh, throw at different speeds, you could be effective. But as he said, every pitcher today throws every pitch with maximum velocity, with the exception of some guys like Kenta Maeda. And every hitter, for the most part, swings as hard as they can on every pitch. And that's what makes it uh, a different game than it was before stat cast and launch angle and spin rate and those types of things uh, came along. I did have a very refreshing conversation with uh, Tucker Frawley. Now, one of my teammates and later I coached was John Stuper, who coached at Yale for 27 years. And one of John's players and then a coach for 12 was Tucker Frawley. And he's in charge of the Twins catchers and, and infielders. And so he is, he is rare breed in that he is curious about some of the things we did and why we did them. So I did sit in the dugout with him for a few innings and discuss that. But again, you know, his, his mission is to do that, but you're still, most organizations are, are at the mercy of what the analytics department says, whether it's the way catchers get down on one knee or whether it's the way infielders, I, I even, now here's a reach. I heard that uh, somebody, I won't even mention the organization because <laughs> I don't want to give them uh, a reputation for being that weird, but I heard one of their control coaches, I'll just call him that, has studied air quality. And so when this team goes in to play the Dodgers during the summer, because the air quality is so bad in LA that they're recommending they stay in their rooms until it's time to go to the ballpark. And, you know, to me, it's taken it a little bit over the top, but that's kind of what we're, we're dealing with. And I, uh, I was very impressed with a couple of quotes that Buck Showalter and Dusty Baker 
I think that was on Kevin. I think Kevin had a column on it a year with uh, with Kevin Kernan. Right, he did. Yeah, and I, and I liked what Dusty said. As he said, I hope that we're we're getting to the point where those that never really played the game but are trying to force feed all the metrics and analytics on us will actually take the time to ask us things that we learn from experience that much might be valuable to them. There's a little cynicism in that, but that's kind of the way Dusty presented it. And I hope the game gets to that. I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm believing that it will. I put something out the other day. We do a lot of, I mean, we're up to, almost 13,500 subscribers on our podcast now. And I've been trying to answer a question a day online for our listeners and then get back to everybody else privately. But one of the comments I made about baseball this year is that there's so much calculating going on right now and not enough thinking. And that's the, the best way I could put it to not insult or attack any particular side, but just kind of put it out there in the universe and, and see who, who picks it up. Yeah, I, I think, uh, and, and we'll get into the rule changes, but I'll just I'll just take off on that one right now. As I think, uh, the pitch clock, which you could also say is a hitter's clock, and I've always said for years when they mention, oh, we got to have a pitch clock. The pitchers take too much time. Well, uh, the, the hitters do as well with the hitting gloves, and they step out of the box. So the combination of those things, I think, is going to have a domino effect on where there's going to be less time to think about how many different pitches I have and what should I throw. It's going to force pitchers to think two or three pitches ahead. Sonny Gray told me that's what he does, Sonny Gray with the Twins. And and I think it's going to force guys, as you said, to uh, to not take so much time and overthink what the next pitch is or what the hitter might anticipate from the pitcher. And, and get in the box and get on the mound and use your intuitive skills and play game. All they're doing is going back really to the pace with which we were trained to play the game before all the science invaded. Yeah, that's uh, every pitcher that we have on or pitching coach that's from, you know, the, I would say the the 90s and, and, and earlier talk about pitching, uh, getting on the mound and pitching uh, at a pace and not allowing the hitter – as much time as they want to process things and really dictate that. And I saw Max Scherzer. I know you weren't at that particular game, but Max Scherzer is already showing pitchers how to take advantage of the pitch clock and getting on the mound quickly. And he, I think he stared down a batter for about 10 seconds the other day, just stared at him until it got down to one, right about zero. And then he decided to pitch. And well, Max, Max might want to dig out an old VHS. I think there's one around because John Allen, who owned the White Sox when I pitched there, and and uh, you might not remember this, but back in the 70s when it appeared my career was going to be over and Johnny Sane started encouraging me to, you know, to come up with a little faster release, faster delivery. And I kept on working on it, working on it in, in, in spring training and I got to the point where I imagined that I was standing on the mound poised to take a step and throw home. The bases were loaded and there was a ground ball hit right back to me on one hop and I was going to throw it to the catcher. So uh, in 1975, I started that way and it drove the hitters crazy. I mean, it was the best first half uh, I ever had. I actually made the all-star team that year, but that, that really proved, uh, you know, hitters wanted to step out of the box and uh, they couldn't get their bat ready. And I thought, well, everybody should try to do this because, you know, pitching, hitting is timing and pitching is destroying their timing, which is the great Warren Spahn's quote. And when you work like that, it, it really throws the, the hitters off. They don't have a mechanism. Brooks Robinson told me that. He said, I don't have a mechanism to start my swing because I started in time with when the pitcher starts his, and when you just step and throw, it takes that away. Yeah. So uh, I think the pitch clock could really be, along with what Max Scherzer is uh, is trying to do, that could be a big advantage for him. Yeah, it's – I personally, as a hitter, I wouldn't like it. Uh, I would no. think – I know people have talked about the, you know, the, the pitchers having to adjust, but as a hitter – I, I wanted to, uh, I didn't want that pitcher in a rhythm. And in fact, when they would get back on the mound, that would be 
what I instruct our hitters to do, you know, if you feel like they're controlling the pace, call a timeout and you can't do that anymore. That's, that's a good point because controlling the pace, see pitching aside from all the mechanics that we talk about and, and, and the, uh, the science that's invaded it. And believe me, some of it is good, you know, studying your spin rate, maybe arm angle ways to improve, but not during the game. And I, I think it's controlling the pace and controlling the count. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the game of, and I, I always spend a lot of time talking to my dear friend, the late Tim McCarver about that. There's not enough material to write a book about the count, but the count is everything in pitching. And that's why strike one is everything because the statistics don't lie. If you get the hitter one and two or oh and two, there's such an advantage to the pitcher. And if you force the hitter to put the ball in play, I know the the uh, analytics people will say the league average is 340 if they put the first strike in play. Well, my answer to them is if they put the first three strikes in play, the average is 340, but the out average is 660. So yeah. I got two outs. So it still is a big advantage to throw strike one and strike two, control the count, and control the pace. And uh, I think now it's going to force pitchers to do that a little more. And, and the reasoning they give is the the numbers that you just presented. That's why they don't promote throwing two strikes in a row. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I, I don't I don't get that because I uh, my theory when I started working quickly, I would tell Brian Downing that was Brian's first year as a as a catcher in 75. And, and we actually, I tried to go through the first few innings without even giving signs. I just said, it's all fastballs. I might vary the speed on a little. Uh, I'm going to deliver them quickly. If I want to throw a breaking ball, I'll wipe down my pant leg. Uh, and let's see what we can do. Sometimes we would actually get through the entire batting order without having to go to a breaking ball. And, uh, and, and I think it, uh, you know, from a, from a thinking standpoint, it put the, it put the hitter really on the on the defensive, uh, and that's what you want to do with a with a quick pace. Yeah, I agree. And then second time through, they haven't really seen your entire repertoire. Right, exactly. And that changing to me, the kind of going back. I, I'm sorry to jump back with it, but the the comments made by you know I think it was Rocco Baldelli about maximum swing and maximum throwing. I, you know, I'm 49 right now. I'm not saying I could get in a box and hit a professional pitcher like I did when I was, you know, 25. But human beings have a way of adjusting to speed. Um, but when you skew that, you know, that vision or that brain uh, with change of speed, change of location, I would think the science would eat that up more than they would the maximum velocity. To me, the maximum velocity thing is a dumbed down attack. Yeah, no, no question. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I think. Uh... When you mentioned adjusting, uh, the hitters have now adjusted to being geared up for when Chapman, I think her oldest Chapman was the first guy we went, wow, well over 100. I mean, Nolan Ryan did it in the 70s, and my teammate Terry Forster even threw harder for a few, few pitchers than Nolan Ryan did. But if you have consistently guys that throw that hard, hitters will adjust, which only tells me that if they're that geared for the maximum effort, then their timing cannot be the same. Uh, and I don't mean just throwing a, a slider a little bit slower than a fastball. There has to be a big variation. They're much more susceptible uh, to an off-speed pitch. I agree. And, it, you know, your your friend uh, Coach Parcells says it better than anybody. His, his One of his favorite lines is, if you get hit in the face with a skunk enough, you start to smell it after a while. <laughs> Sounds like something, Coach. That yeah, was one of my enjoyable stops, too, as he and I had dinner together and talked some baseball. He's such a great baseball fan. He'd already been down to see uh, the Nationals and the Cardinals uh, a couple of games. So, Oh, great. I didn't, I didn't Coach, know that. A lot of great, <laughs> great lines. The other adjustment, I think, is that with the bases, uh, infielders will adjust, too, on ground balls. They'll they'll just learn that okay I've got to I got to release the ball just a touch faster now because they're getting what an extra uh, an extra two inches or is it only between first and second? Yeah, I, I think it's extra three inside the diamond. Yeah, yeah. 
And but uh, all those kind of things, those, those to me are, you know, and, and just, I just can't help but say it. I just think they're such Mickey Mouse rules. Uh, you know, they, they don't need to mess with the integrity of the game. I think the pitch clock still keeps the integrity of the game the same. You're just doing what you're doing at a faster pace. Uh, the shifting, now I heard that some teams are, are going to employ like five outfielders or going to put an outfielder in short right field or something like that. Yeah, uh, they did start manipulating that late uh, mid yeah. last week. They put their if they're left, like Joey Gallo, they did it against. Yeah. They stuck their left fielder almost like a soft, well, they, like they did with the third baseman. They stuck him in short right center field. Yeah, so I, th- I think baseball have to step in and make a ruling about that and just have them, uh, you know, back to their normal positions that they ought to be assigned to it. Unless they want to do that in the hitters, you know, that's that's a little bit more of a, a different target than just hitting a ground ball single. If you're giving a guy the whole outfield out there uh, with men on base, that, that could be a little dangerous for the opposition to do that, so... We'll have to see how that plays out. A lot of these things, I really wish that they would have gone to the lowest minors and started them down there because it's going to be very difficult. I know doing Yankee games, they were constantly getting messages from MLB. Uh, Posada's not ready. It takes too much time to get up there. Uh, you got to have a bat ready and get up in the box. And our pitchers are taking too long to get in from the bullpen. They were always talking about things like that. So, uh, you know, I, I think that all this, uh, you know, the, the, the clock, that's not messing with the integrity of the game. It's just getting players to do uh, what they do at a little quicker pace. And I think it'll be more enjoyable to the fans. I noticed articles now already in spring training where they're raving about a game yesterday was played in two hours and 16 minutes. Yeah. Uh, you know, and what, what all the umpires and, the vendors didn't like it, but all my teammates in 75, I think I had, I, I would say I had 15 games that were less than, shorter than two hours, and several were under 145. Randy Jones and I went 131 one game, but a lot of them were in the 140s and 150s. And uh, like I said, the vendors don't like it, but uh, I, I think the players appreciate it, keeps them on their toes. Yeah. I think it, you know, with there's so much, there's a dichotomy between what they're trying to do and what they do do sometimes, and they don't always mesh. The the speed of the game, I, you know, I, I loved watching guys like Mark Burley pitch or yeah. Maddox. They got on quickly, but they also, back to your point about throwing strikes, they also threw early strikes. Right. And this whole maximum velocity thing, I wish they would all get on the same page, the all, you know, the science page and say, okay, we are going to, move quickly, but will you guys please teach your pitchers to throw strikes? Yeah. It's funny, funny you mentioned that. Uh, I was playing uh, golf down on Florida, down in Florida, and uh, there was a young golfer. I think he's going to be really terrific. Uh, uh, Sean Crocker, born in South Africa and uh, played college golf over here at USC. And he was asking, he said, now, what, what do you think some of the best advice you got as a professional baseball player, as a pitcher? And I said, well, number one, throw strikes. Yeah, that was that was priority number one is control the strike zone. Yeah, I, I, I like that. It's, you know, it's it doesn't have to be harder than that. The game's hard enough to begin with. I read something on social media uh, it was yesterday that someone put up a, the old Sandy Koufax quote about he he became a great pitcher when he stopped trying to make people miss and started trying to make people hit the ball. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a famous quote that I've used for years. And that was, uh, that was Norm Sherry, one of the backup catchers for the Dodgers. You know, Sandy was one of those uh, bonus babies that got a, a, a high, more than fourth, I think he got 30, 35 grand or something to sign with the Dodgers. And so he had to be on the big league roster for two years back there in like 55, 56. And he threw hard, but it was all over the place. And then it was Norm Sherry that told him, and I mentioned this one time to Max Scherzer about finding a cruising speed just to get through uh, the batting order the first, you know, first time around. And they don't pitch like that anymore. But yeah, Sandy found a a cruising speed. But when you combined it with his kind of languid motion, 
the ball got on the hitter so quickly, it didn't look like he was throwing that hard, but you couldn't catch up with it. I remember, you know, dealing against him in the World Series for three games in 65, and you sat on the bench. We had one of the best field hitting teams in the league, and I sat on the bench those games, and I just felt bad for our hitters. I said, man, they, they just can't time this guy. He, he doesn't look like he's throwing, I don't know what the miles per hour was, but, uh, you know, that's the deceiving thing about the radar gun. It's a combination of the speed combined with what the hitter sees in your motion, how it comes out of your hand. Are you a guy that, that hitters would say he's got this sneaky fast fastball? I, I think what convinced me I didn't have to go with a fast motion early in the 60s is Mickey Mantle got on first base. I, probably, I think I walked him. And uh, he told Harmon, he said, man, Harmon Killebrew, he said, this kid's fastball. I don't see it coming out of his hand, and it sneaks up on me. And so that's all I had to hear to, when pitchers, well, you got to go with your motion fast. doesn't mean working faster. They wanted my windup to be faster, and that just didn't work for me. So yeah, I, I think there's, uh, there's a lot more of that that goes into uh, the pitching motion than just maximum effort. Yeah. I think the stuff that you're saying, and we, again, we're listening to from grassroots all the way up to the front offices. So pitchers, young pitchers, old pitchers that are listening, this is great advice uh, that, that you're giving out right here. And it's, it's free. So I hope they're writing this stuff down. <laughs> I, I've got a question too. This is from a hitter standpoint. I'm watching the hitters in spring training. I don't see a whole lot changing in terms of the barrel dumps, meaning they, they're dropping that barrel early. And then for, for the most part, not, not everybody, but, um, which makes it very difficult to touch that fastball up in the strike zone. And of course, pitchers, they're teaching pitchers to work up in the strike zone. Um, where does the rubber meet the road there? At what point in time, again, I'm a former hitter. I'm so mad they keep changing the rules where I wish hitters would just, you know, adjust their swings, take their hands to the baseball. I'm sure Rod Carew and Tony Oliva must have had a field day down there watching that stuff. Yeah, and, and very few people, you know, ask them, ask them things. You know, I, I was behind the cage watching them, and they're watching guys swing, and, and uh, you know, nobody seems like they really picked their brain. But uh, I mentioned, uh, I'm trying to think of who the player was. I said, does anybody play Pepper anymore? And now our fans out there might, the young fans, they might not even know what Pepper is. But no clue. They have no clue. You know, the the year I coached for Pete Rose, I always played pepper in spring training. It taught you kind of how to bunt the ball, taught you how to watch the ball, hit the bat, and control the bat. And uh, I never saw a day, had a day go by when I coached for Pete Rose that he'd say, Kenny, we going out and play a little pepper? Of course. And that's what we did. But I think that's where you kind of mold your ability to make contact and you forget about all the mechanical stuff. But back to your high pitch, yes, more more hitters now, right-hand hitters, are low-ball hitters, which used to be rare. Right-hand hitters had the bat flat on their shoulder. So if the bat is flat on your shoulder, you're much more apt to hit a high pitch than a low pitch. But if your bat is pointed vertical, the barrel vertical, which is most left-hand hitters, that's why they're left. They're low-ball hitters. They just drop the barrel on it. Yeah. Well, that's why now, because they're into this launch angle, it's very difficult to launch a high pitch. The good hitters that could handle a high pitch, like my teammate Keith Hernandez, uh, as, a, as a lefty against lefty, he was as good as there is at getting on top of that high fastball and hitting it the opposite way, probably like George Brett. But that's why we've always said pitching for as long as the game's been around is high and tight, low and away, <clears throat> get your secondary pitches over when you're behind in the count. And the reason you pitch them low and away is because their arms are attached to their shoulders, not to their knees. It's the hardest pitch to reach. And the reason you pitch them up and in is that unless their arms are only a foot long, they're having trouble getting around on that high pitch. But it has to be not just high, but high and in, high and tight. I And then, again, the things that you're describing as a hitter, you can get done in pepper because yeah. you're, you're as a, you know, for the young audience who doesn't know. And what's sad, Jim, is if you go to fields, you'll see signs on fields that say no pepper. I know they even had them in big league stands because for the screens, if you played pepper when the gates were open uh, and you did it against the infield 
uh, wall there, they were afraid that fans fans might get hurt. So we would have to we would come out very early and behind home plate we'd play pepper or we'd spring training course go against the outfield uh, outfield wall. And the other byproduct to that is usually the pitchers. We might have five or six of us. You know, one guy would have the bat. The other five are are kind of lined up uh, where you're hitting one to each guy along the line is it improves your reflexes for fielding. Oh, absolutely. In fact, we, you, you'll be proud of me. Uh, we use that as a, a warm up for our hitters, but we also use it as a precursor for our PFP for our pitchers. Yeah. Um, yeah. They actually make a, they make a, I don't know if it's still around, but years ago they had a ball called the incredible and there was a major league player named Del Unser, who I think was involved in that some way. But uh, when I coached the pitchers for the Reds, uh, we would have some of those incredible balls, and I would, with a fungal bat, hit them back at them as hard as I could, knowing that it wasn't going to hurt them. But it did prepare them to anticipate. That's really what fielding for a pitcher is, is anticipating the ball hit back at you. And that's about non-existent today. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you obviously your fielding credentials speak for themselves with the number of Rawlings Gold Gloves you won over your career. The uh, So hopefully the, the young guys are listening to it. I know we, we've talked about that on the air too. Now, I hate that I'm jumping around on you today. I apologize. It's like a verbal parkour. But you mentioned being able to teach the young guys spin based on your grip. And one, I, in my head, I'm thinking they're so into spin rate. Why wouldn't they all be running up to you? What about um, arm conditioning? Is that something else you think you can impress upon young pros, young kids out there, how you go about that? Well, you know, again, I go back to before before we had all the uh, weight training and uh, physical fitness that they're trying to get into now, uh, we went by a lot of the old school rules. and. And the guy I asked was Warren Spahn. Uh, I may have mentioned that before. And for young fans, Warren Spahn's gold standard left-hander won 363 games. I think he ended up with 303 complete games. And and the modern people would say, yeah, but, you know, you didn't have to throw that hard then and the hitters weren't as powerful. Yeah, you're right. They had heavier bats. Everybody wasn't trying to hit every pitch out of the ballpark. But nevertheless, in his era – uh, Warren Spahn was the gold standard. So when I got a pitching lesson from him, I said, now, Spahnie, how did you, and first of all, I called him Mr. Spahn. And then he said, Warren or Spahnie? I mean, he was like 40 then and I was 22 or something. So I said, Spahnie, how did you condition your arm in spring training? He said, well, I took this little leather bag of balls. Now they, they're a lot fancier than just a leather bag out in the short center field, throw them in a pile and pick up the ball like you were an infielder and go hop, step, and throw as if the screen behind second base was the first baseman. And we would he'd one-hop it into the screen, start maybe in spring training at 40 feet, you know, very short, and then uh, do it every day for a while, then maybe take a day off, then stretch it out to 50 feet, 60 feet. And so uh, the first year I tried that, I think it was 63 or – yeah, I think it was 63. Uh, boy, coaches and veterans are running out. Uh, what are you doing? I mean, that can't be good for you, you know. And, and so to fast forward, well, 25 years later or thereabouts, I'm still pitching and I run into those a lot of those guys that are that are uh, coaching or something. And I, I said, well, if you'd have thrown more, then, you know, you might still be pitching. But that really – prepared me, uh, you know, conditioned my arm along with the way we did game preparation during spring training to, to be ready to pitch nine innings on opening day. Yeah, and it's a whole different mentality now. They're training to go four, right? Four and a third, maybe. Well, I guess two times through the batting order, I don't know. They've What they've done, if, if they continue to do that, they're making the game uh, less and less enjoyable to – a big chunk of fans. Now, if the, if the younger fans come along, and I hope they do, I don't want to discourage kids from falling in love with baseball. And if they see what the way it's played today and they like that, well, that's great. I hope millions of them come out. But you wouldn't me you wouldn't get me going to a game where if I knew ahead of time there was going to be six different pitchers used. Now, if you said that Max Scherzer is pitching today against Jacob DeGrom, and there's a pretty good chance they might each go the distance, 
I'm going to buy a ticket to that game. I want to see that. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, we don't uh, we don't have as many of those anymore, if any. No. The irony of it, though, is so the this, the people behind the game want it to go faster. But the scientists that are restructuring the game on the team side are using five, six, seven, eight pitchers a game. That makes the game go slower when they do that. Um, I'm wondering at what point in time they're going to get together and figure out what they want and maybe just let baseball take its own shape. Yeah. You know, I don't know if this is fact or fiction. I've even heard that there was an organization that had done some studies and they wanted their pitchers to take um, 20 to 25 seconds at least between pitches because it allows their arm to recover enough to throw that 98 mile an hour fastball with the next pitch. Hmm. And now, of course, I've even read a couple of comments that are, are we going to see pitchers in, injured because they have to learn to pitch so fast? I mean, we're going down the rabbit hole of that kind of thinking. <laughs> we got to just get back to the way the game was meant to be played. It's, that's what I mentioned earlier when we were talking to show that people are over calculating things instead of just thinking yeah. and doing. And, um, well, you know, the, the good, the good thing is, uh, is, is exciting thing is that we can talk about is I think the uh, world baseball classic coming up. Oh yeah. It's a great, I, I got yeah. one more question to ask you before we move into that though. I want to, what, what's part, what's coach Parcells say about baseball right now? Where's his, where's his mind? Are you, are you at Liberty? Well, he, he, he's he kind of along with me. And, and usually he says, well, you know, the same thing's happening in football. Uh, coach will say, we had all this analytical information, but we called it statistics. So he has it down where if my special teams uh, turn the ball over once their winning percentage goes down to X, because they could tell by their record when, when that happened, if they yeah. won or lost. If you turn it over twice, you're really hurting. If you give up 100 yards rushing, uh, you know, that's going to lower your winning percentage. So uh, his big thing was find me the three best punters and bring them back. And I want a best punter because I want field position. But he said now the game is getting like – one example he mentioned, and, and there's an analogy there with a comparison to baseball, too. He said they got all these stats that, okay, on fourth down, if you go for it, on fourth and three, your percentage of making it is X percent. Well, if Lawrence Taylor's on the other side of the line, that percentage might go down. Just a little. <laughs> so, so it's like, who's on the other side? And that's what I always say about things like spin rate. So if you have one of the best spin rates – in baseball on your curveball, and now you're facing uh, Mike Trout in the eighth inning with two on in a tie game. Is your spin rate the same against Mike Trout then that it is against a 200 or 180 hitter in the eighth inning, in the first inning when nobody on? I mean, so it's who's, who's the opposition? And all these, all these analytics and metrics are based on averages, and the competition is different on the other side of, of football or baseball, the hitters different all the time. So you have to figure out what works best for you. Yep. And yeah, Mike Trout, neither Mike Trout nor Lawrence Taylor are average. So right. I agree. and the one last science thing, I threw this at somebody the other day as a hitter, the tighter, the spin rate in my direction. So pitcher throwing a tight spin rate. I have that same luxury when I put the bat on the ball. So my spin rate of hitting it back to you is going to be better, the better your spin rate is coming to me um, if I'm hitting the ball properly. And uh, so I, I, I just don't know where that's all going. But uh, I try to, I try to uh, out-geek the geeks sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's hard to do. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I got a little geek in me. I can do some of it, but I'm, I'm careful. I don't want to have to give up all my milk money. That, yeah, right. you know, but the World Baseball Classic, you were, you've been a fixture uh, over the years since they started it, um, you know, calling the games. Uh, I'll kind of throw it at you to where you want to start with that. Well, I, you know, it started in 2006. I didn't even realize that. The International Baseball Federation started it in 2006. It really didn't get much exposure at all then. And then in 2009, 2013, 2017, I did either a pool or the finals in, in all three of those. And uh, to show you how, uh, how much it has become now a real world series, and maybe someday we won't be calling 
our fall classic world series. We'll call it the fall classic or the MLB championship. Yeah. Uh, because right now, if you look at the all WBC teams, since it's been inaugurated, uh, the United States has seven players on, uh, on the all WBC teams. Uh, the Japan has nine. Puerto Rico has nine. Dominican has a half a dozen. Korea has a half a dozen. Cuba has five. And there's a couple from the Netherlands. So we're, we're seeing how that's increased, how it has really become an international game. You know, Japan won the first two, then uh, Dominican Republic, and then uh, the United States uh, won. And they're going to try to go back to back now since it's been six years since we've had one. So I think from a United States standpoint, more of the big leaguers are beginning to look at this as a much more important thing than they did in the early years. It was big to the Latin American countries and Japan to show that, hey, we can compete with the United States. They think it's always been their game, but we're pretty good at it too. And we're finding that out now that, uh, uh, you know, the, I did the finals a couple of years ago. It was the Dominican Republic against Puerto Rico. And they had a lot of superstar big leaguers on on those teams. You know, uh, uh, Yadier Molina was uh, was on the Puerto Rican team, and I think uh, uh, Reyes and Lind well, uh, Lindor was on uh, Venezuela's team. But there were a lot of Nelson Cruz and Tejada at one time. Miguel Tejada on the Dominican team. So uh, it's getting it's gaining more and more importance and more and more exposure. I saw a nice picture today of my good friend, Bert Blylevin, who's been the pitching coach for the Dutch team, who, who has done well in it. And then it had Mike Piazza, who was involved with uh, Italy. Right. And then uh, who else was in that picture in the middle? They're all over in, um, oh, it's Mariano Rivera. He's over there with Team Panama. And they're all playing in the pool in uh, Taiwan. Yeah, and we had, Mike was on our show. He graciously came on as he started this journey with the Italian team and what do you see a difference in intensity when these guys are playing for their country as opposed to maybe early season in major league baseball? Well, I, I did because I'm, I'm seeing the, the games that are, are pool games. Like when I did the games over at Eram Bithorn in Puerto Rico, you know, you had a lot of the Puerto Rican fans are coming out to see their, their team. So there's a lot more passion in the stands. When I did the one in, um, in Chase Field in Arizona, then Team Mexico was in there. And wow, did they send a representation over. So there's a lot more intensity from the fans, which I think in turn will make it more intense for the players. They'll have a, a sense that it's much more uh, important when they see that kind of interest from the fans. In terms of intensity, uh, share a little bit more about that. Well, I, I think that you're you're seeing players, I think, now ready themselves. I read today on the MLB.com a couple players that have been in spring training now for, for a few weeks, and they've declared themselves ready to go out uh, and perform. And I think early on in some of them that the pitchers particularly may not quite have been ready. And then when they get in competition, the, the, the natural thing to do is maybe – uh, throw a little harder than you've been throwing. And there have been some injuries that uh, came out. I remember Drew Smiley, I saw him start a game and I mean, he was dealing through the first three innings. And then I think it was a couple weeks later where he went on the shelf for an arm injury. So I think the players now are, uh, are, are getting more intensity. The intensity where I, where I saw, which still stands out to me is in 2009 when the Dutch team was matched against the Dominican team. And it was like the Harlem Globetrotters and the uh, and the Washington Generals, right? I mean, they didn't think the Dutch kids had a chance. So all the Dominican players are playing home run derby in batting practice. Hanley Ramirez and Nelson Cruz was there and Tejada. And, uh, and they thought it was going to be a walkover. Well, the Dutch beat them two to one. And, the, and one of the couple of famous players there is in Kenley Jansen, who's now one of the great closers was the catcher for the Dutch team. I read that and, the other day. And he's throwing these runners out from his knees, you know, and cut a couple of them down. So uh, the Dutch, I think they beat the Dominican twice that uh, that pool and advanced to the next stage. So 
I saw a lot of intensity there, particularly from the teams that are trying to make everybody feel that they belong. You know, Team Israel won a game last year. I was over in New Zealand and a part of that team. They, you know, they're getting more and more numbers that uh, maybe someday they'll be able to compete with Australia and some of the other uh, teams that they go up against. Yeah, our, our our mutual friend James Matthews. I hope he he's on that team. That would be kind of a fun story. Oh yeah, sure would. He's a wonderful young man. So, and then you mentioned the intensity of the crowd. You know, we go to games here and. You know, I, I when I was in Georgia, I used to go to the Braves games, and we love going to games of family. But when I watch other families go, there's so many other things that are at the ballparks right now. Restaurants, it's almost like an amusement park in the the upper mezzanine that distract these kids and families from the games. iPhones included. When you're talking about the fans' intensity too, what, what's that like? Well, I think when you see the the fans from Mexico, the fans from the Dominican, they come in. Uh, like they did for Big Poppy at the Hall of Fame induction. Induction. They all got their shirts on. They're dressed to to let you know that they're identified with the Dominican team, with Big Poppy. And now you see uh, two sections of fans with the uh, green and red and all the you know colors from Team Mexico. Uh, so that's a difference you see in the in the fans there. There's they're much more animated uh, than I think are our American fans have been over the years. I mean, for the most part, the intensity, even in a Red Sox-Yankees series, uh, when you watch one of those games in Fenway Park, the early innings can be pretty, pretty quiet. Fans are still coming in. And then all of a sudden, when it gets late in the game and it's close, then the intensity uh, amps up. But with these World Baseball Classic games and the fans coming in from uh, countries where they take – a lot of delight in trying to beat the Americans. You really see a lot of animation from from the fans. Yeah, they, they come in idling at ninety right there. Yeah. They're ready to rock and roll. So with the with the with the classic, with you having been a part of it for for so long, what are some of the countries you mentioned? New Zealand, you mentioned Netherlands. What are some other countries that you've seen kind of evolve in baseball? And we should be maybe seeing some of those players in our major leagues sometime soon, if not already. Well, the, the Netherlands has always had a good uh, international program. Uh, I spent some time over there, and uh, in fact, I sent a, uh, I took a couple of their baseballs home with me, and I passed them on to Steve Keener, who's now president of Little League. What they do, I think Steve still is. I mean, time flies by for me at my age, but uh, this was like, uh, yes. I think about 10, yeah, I think it was about 10 or 12 years ago I was there. Robert Ainhorn, who played briefly for the Yankees and the Angels, was still running their program over there. And for the like seven to nine year olds, they use a baseball that is much smaller. So these kids can actually grip the ball like I could grip a regular regulation ball. And so it's much easier to, to teach them pitching. And uh, they have some of these indoor facilities. They've hired some former American League either minor league or big league players to go over there and coach full time. A lot of their programs are sponsored, you know, by the, by the country. And you're really seeing some good fundamental baseball. Uh, yeah. I, I think when you look at how Korea has developed over, over the years, they, they weren't that represented to begin with, but they are now. They are definitely. Uh, yeah. And, and then when you begin to see the American players, like I think, um, uh, I think Edmund from the Cardinals, I think he's playing for Team Korea, Tommy Edmund, because he has some Korean, you know, there's ancestors there from Korea. So that's all you need to qualify. So you're going to see, uh, you know, I guess if I were to play now uh, in my playing days, I would play for the Team Netherlands because my grandparents came from the Netherlands. So you're going to see more Americans playing. And as a result, maybe with the with the new players in these different countries, they're going to learn from the experienced players. And as a whole, the whole program should get better. I, I agree with you with that. And it, do you see a different style of baseball in the classic like you do? I mean, the, the regular season in Major League Baseball, I think, is different than what we see in the playoffs. All of a sudden, guy, teams are bunting and moving guys over and playing. Yeah, I, I think you're going to see that based on uh, – on what their personnel is. Um, 
you know, not every lineup in every country is going to have a, a home run threat one through nine like uh, Team USA. I, I think maybe Puerto Rico, Dominican, some of those teams might have a, a nine, you know, certifiable big leaguers on their team. Some of the smaller countries won't have that. So uh, take a team like Team Israel. Uh, they're they're probably going to bunt and hit and run. They're going to depend on good fundamental defense, uh, kind of like the way we we won the World Series in '82 with the Cardinals. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. You made made uh, turn baseball up on its head right there with speed and defense and moving guys around. That was a fast fast lineup you had there on the uh, behind you. Are there are there is there uh, is there a team that you're looking for this year outside of U.S. to make a little noise? In the classic, are you up on it? You know, I haven't, I haven't seen the rosters to really, to really tell. I mean, you, I'd always consider Dominican Republic, uh, Puerto Rico. I think right now those are the top two ranked teams by the writers that follow it closely. Uh, that have kind of ranked them one through twenty. I think China was like the least highly ranked, but you got Dominican. Puerto Rico, then the United States, and then Japan, Cuba, uh, always have to be considered that those would kind of be the top five. I, I think it would be a surprise if any other country but one of those five were to win the whole thing. Yeah. I, uh, you know, with Cuba, obviously they have their political issues and it restricts who they can have on, on their team. Most of their best players are here now in the States. But a team that I always love is the Curacao, the land of the shortstops. Um, such a tiny, tiny little place. Have you have you had any experience with with guys from that country? That oh, a lot. See, that's that's Team Netherlands. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you know, if uh, if there's Yankee fans out there, they, they'll remember Hensley Bam Bam Mullen. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Bam Bam came out of there, and then he was kind of their hitting coach. But uh, oh, they you know they had. Uh, I think Didi Gregorius yeah. and uh, Andrelton Simmons. Uh, I got to be forgetting some because there's yeah, more. Yeah. Bogarts. Yeah, yeah he, he came out of there. Uh, so, yeah, Curacao. Uh, and I, I hope that they're able to say, uh, I think he might be the first Hall of Famer if he gets in next year. And I've had a chance to meet this guy. He's just a terrific young man who's a great player, and that's Andrew Jones. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I hope he does too. He's certainly, uh, yeah. You know, he was up when he was 19 years old and, right. and he came out of the, the program down there. So the Dutch are lucky that you know, fortunate that that's part of their, uh, uh, team Netherlands. Is it by circumstance just by chance or do they do something special to create that many shortstops? You know, I really don't know. It, it's, it's kind of like, um, Maybe one looks up to another when they're kids. If you go back to Venezuela, when I was a kid, Chico Carrasquel came out of Venezuela, played for the White Sox, and he was the standout from Venezuela. Then here came Louis Aparicio, then Dave Concepcion, then Ozzie Guillen, then Omar Vizquel. Yeah. Then you go to the Dominican. Here came Tony Fernandez, and then the Dominican shortstops. I think Reyes came from the – and all of a sudden, it's like, okay, well, I want to be a shortstop like this guy. And they produce one after the other. Yeah. I liken, uh, you know, we saw this happen in basketball when they decided to go with the Dream Team back in 92. I liken what the World Baseball Classic, I, I hope it has that kind of influence. It looks like it has on the rest of the world of baseball. Some of those other countries that, like you mentioned, Israel, that sees what it's like, they get a taste of it, they go and they get a win, and that sparks an entire generation of, of baseball players to, to just see what they can become in the game. Yeah, I, I think so. And, you know, the it's going to create, uh, you know, we've seen teams already go over to uh, to London and play some games, but it's, it's going to eventually, not in my lifetime, but it's going to create really a world – a world baseball league. I mean, where games are played and maybe we're even going to see, uh, uh, have it be profitable enough for countries to say, well, we're going to have our own team. We don't want to send our players to the United States. So it's really going to be a world world game uh, as I've seen it grow since 2006. Yeah. What are, what are a few of your best memories from the classic? 
calling the game. I think that first pool that I did when I saw the Dutch team uh, uh, beat the Dominican, and then uh, they they also were in the semifinals in Dodger Stadium against the uh, against Puerto Rico, and they had them uh, on the ropes. Sander was on that team, Jerks and Probar Profar. Yeah, uh, and they had a home run hitter. His name escapes me. Uh, he wasn't a big leaguer, but uh, it's it's always impressive to see the smaller countries uh, be able to compete. Canada had uh, had a nice team. They had some big leaguers coming out of uh, coming from Team Canada. Of course, if they had uh, Larry Walker was still playing, he'd be their star player. <laughs> yeah, Joey Votto, I think, is Canada also. Yeah. No, it's a, it must have been a treat. And I'm guessing you'll be tuning in this year, but from a different perspective, right? Yeah, I think uh, I think Fox Sports, I think FS1, I don't know who the announcers are, but I, I worked uh, early on with, uh, uh, with Richie from who did the Miami games. Uh, and then um, she, there was a, a, a MLB announcer that's now doing – the uh, the Marlins games, and then I worked some with Bob Costas. Yeah, that was uh, I would imagine coming in at the inception of this classic was was amazing experience. Yeah. Um, do you hope it goes to a World Game? Where it's uh, I I guess I wouldn't be opposed to that. I mean, we've taken such pride for years in having baseball be the American pastime, but. We, we have to understand now that we're not, that football has taken over as a much more popular sport. But what baseball has going for it is that it is a sport that's spread more worldwide than football. It is. Uh, basketball is getting that way. Some of the other sports like soccer and lacrosse. But, yeah, I think maybe, um, maybe that would be a way for baseball to keep its popularity is to spread it all over the world. I, I tend to agree. It, it certainly would take the control, quote unquote, away from America. But I think it would make it America's pastime because we are you know, we're a melting pot here. So I think uh, I think it would be great. I think it would be phenomenal. And maybe force our game to take a deeper look at some of the manufactured changes that they're making here in the state yeah. and get back to the way the game was meant to be played. I hope so. I do, too. I think uh, well, I'm going to tell you this. D- don't you uh, don't you dare stop doing what you're doing and spreading your message. You, you're. Uh, you <laughs> well, I enjoy doing it. You know, I had uh, one of my uh, former teammates, and he was my personal catcher for a while. Phil Roof. Uh, Phil put a lot of years in the big leagues. This is his 63rd spring training, and he's in spring training with the Twins. And some of the guys enjoyed hearing our stories because when uh, Phil was with the uh, Kansas City A's. Uh, Harmon Killebrew was trying to score on a double. He got a late start. And when he came into home plate, Phil just kind of, you know, he had the plate block. He just kind of angled his left knee out in Harmon's way. And Harmon flipped over and tipped, didn't score, didn't touch the plate. It's kind of an embarrassing play. And our, our dugout went berserk. They, you know, a dirty play. He's got to go while I'm pitching. So I got I to gotta stand up for my team. So um, I missed Rufy a couple times, and I finally got him in the ribs. <laughs> he looked out at me. Well, now two, about three years later, he gets traded to our team. So as soon as he walked in the door, I said, well, we're on the same team now, pal. And we got along great. And one year at the end of 1971, Bill Rigney put him in to catch me. And it was like magic. And so in 72, he started out as my personal catcher. And on the 1st of July, I think Jim Palmer and I were leading the league in just about everything. I was 10 and 2. And I slid into second and broke this small bone in my wrist. So my season was over. And I said, well, Rumi, there goes your job. But uh, then he ended up catching Burt Blylevin a lot. But, uh, yeah, we had, a, we had a good time sharing some of those uh, spring training stories in, uh, with, with the current players. Well, we're we're, we're- – slowly approaching an hour and it's terrible me to ask you this question so late. So you take as long with it as you want, but you mentioned uh, the magical relationship with the catcher. We don't see that anymore, uh, partially because the games are scripted by a wristband or an earpiece um, in the pitchers and catchers. And we've had, we've even had professional 
major league coaches, assistants, college coaches on the show saying they get young players, catchers that have never called a game in their life. They're already in professional baseball. What made that relationship so magical? Well, first of all, there was there was not a lot of or any information coming in from the sideline. Uh, pre-game, you talked with the catcher, and usually the pitcher told all the players used to sit in the middle of the room on this trunk and say, okay, here's Mantle. I'm pitching today. He's a high fastball hitter. You play him to pull. Then the catcher and I would get together. Well, you know, you got to gamble early in the count with Mickey. Uh, try to get ahead and then make your curveball work for you. I know he's a fastball hitter, but if you throw curveball one, curveball two, then as uh, the later Obadi used to do for me, he'd just make the sign of the cross and put his glove up in the middle of the face. Good luck, you know. <laughs> but the, the magic of pitcher-catcher is what Phil and I were talking about. And we had a game in Detroit. And Willie Horton... Uh, who was a powerful, lethal fastball hitter. And, uh, you know, my my fastball in the 60s, I I could say it was uh, much better than average, but now in the 70s, not not so much. Uh, But I I had, it came to a 2-2 count. And it's the, I think the fourth time I had faced Willie. Threw him a lot of curves. I had a third pitch, which called a short curve. Today, they'd call it a slider, but today's that's not really a slider. It's a short curve or a sweeping curve. And I, I got a 2-2 count, and I said, something tells me I could get Willie out with a fastball right here. And I looked down, and Phil put the fastball sign down, and we got him out. Well, see, that's the kind of thinking that you want with a catcher. And, and that may have... That may have gone aside because no matter the situation or no matter what happened the first two at-bats, they seem to be locked in. This is the way we pitch John Jones or whoever it is. And we're going to continue. If we have to throw 15 sliders, that's what we're going to do. There's no creativity to changing the pattern and the element of surprise. And that's what I always – there's nothing more satisfying – to a pitcher that's not known as a power pitcher to get a hitter out with a fastball because it frustrates him, you know, because it, that guy, I can hit his fastball. How do you get me out with that pitch? And that's one of the satisfying things of pitching. And one of the nice things about pitching and catching is that the game then was just in our hands. Nobody else told us what to do. That's right. You got the best seat in the house to figure it yeah. out. Yeah. So, well, we're, uh, my, my son Tanner's a catcher. My older son, David, we call him blue as a pitcher. So, um, I have never called a game for either one of them today. Good for you. We just, uh, yeah, I asked Skip Bertman coached LSU. He he was a pitching coach for Ron Frazier at Miami for a while. Then he got the head coaching job at LSU. Legendary. Doing the college world series. And they have a, a catcher who went on to be a number one draft pick named Craig Faulkner. I want to say this was about 1984, somewhere in the early 80s. And I said, Skip, I heard you call the pitches. He said, I do. And I said, uh, Craig Faulkner is going to be drafted, probably number one, right? Yeah. Has he ever called a game? No. Uh, what's he going to do when he reports to his minor league team and they say, here's the pitcher, you call the game? He got no clue. But the college coach... He doesn't coach to prepare players for the big leagues. He coaches to win games for his school. And that's why if you have a, if you have a son, I mean, I I always paid close attention to this. If, if I had a dad say, I've got a pitcher, I've got a young boy who's a, who's a pitching prospect. He's looking at going to a D one school. Where would you recommend? Well, at that time I recommended Arizona because I knew Jerry Kendall was there. He was a teammate of mine, and he wasn't going to abuse pitchers. And then there was Larry Koshell, who was at Oklahoma, and then I think went out to Cal State Fullerton. And he was that kind of guy. But there are others that I won't name, and I would say, well, don't send them here because your son's going to be on the operating table. Yeah. No, that's it's, it's, it's things that parents don't quite understand, and it's not really their fault in a way. They just – they're, they're listening to the loudest voices and in our world, the loudest voices usually don't know what they're talking about. Um, I'm glad you were able to step in and direct a few anyway. Why, buddy, I kept you for an hour and five minutes. Did, uh, what haven't we covered? What, what, what do you want to get out there today? Well, I think enjoy the world baseball classic. 
enjoy the fact that I think major league games will be more entertaining with the pitch clock. I hope that the spring training games are enough for everybody to adjust to it because there have been a couple of, uh, you know, instances the other day where a game ended uh, on a called strike because the hitter took too much time. You yeah. hate to see a game during the season and and certainly not in postseason play oh, get determined by that. So I think they'll work enough of the of the kinks out uh, with the with the time clock, but I think overall uh, it's needed because uh, it's it's going to be it's kind of going to force pitchers to do uh, what we did. You know, if if we took that much time years ago, I mean, our fielders would be all over us. You know, yeah. <laughs> let's get the game moving. So I think that'll be a very positive effect. Yeah, I can talk from being a second baseman. I like guys that work quick. I like guys that threw strikes. The, even though I yeah. have a concentration level, the, the longer you're out there, the more potential your mind to not be locked in 100%. So Absolutely. I agree with you. Well, Jim, I always enjoy our, our conversations. Glad to, I'm glad to have you back. Um, sounds like you had a great trip down there and got to, got to do a lot of different things. And I, I didn't know about the Parcells lunch. That made me smile when you said that. Yeah. And then, but uh, for our audience here, uh, you know, we'll continue to bring you magic once a week with, with Cots Corner. We're on episode 134 right now for Real Voices of the Game. We want to make sure that we thank our 13,400 subscribers we're up to now. We appreciate your support. Continue to download, listen, like, subscribe. This podcast will be produced right after the show. We'll have it out to you this afternoon. Continue to get us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. And I am getting used to Facebook. So, all you guys that are, are sending me questions to answer, we had close to 400 this morning, Jim. I put your wow, I put good. your promo out there late last night, uh, seeing if I could sneak it in, and uh, tons of people asking questions uh, of what we're doing of of the show, and I put one up on uh, on today that was about mindset. They asked me about uh, growth mindset, fixed mindset. Boy, they challenged my my uh, my knowledge left and right. And then I'll share some of those with you, and maybe we can use those for our next show. Sounds good to me, Dave. Well, guys, have a great uh, audience. Have a great rest of the day. Tune into the World Baseball Classic, and this is Cots Corner signing off. This town ain't big. This town ain't small, it's a little of both.